This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Nashen Moodley is the festival director of the Sydney Film Festival. Over his successful nine-year tenure, the festival has grown dramatically. It now shows over 300 films from 55 countries to record audience numbers. So, Nashen, just how many films do you actually see a year? I think around 500. It used to be closer to 800. I did count once. And um, that also included lots of short films, which I don't watch very much anymore. Um, so I've tried to bring the number down, but I'd, I'd say it's around 500. So you've watched 500 films a year for 15 years in a row, and I come along and ask you to pick just one. That's right. Of course, it's a question I'm asked all the time. What's your favourite film? Yeah, it's a slightly different question because it needn't be your favourite on Five of My Life. It's just one that really had an impact on you. And you've chosen Takeshi's Hannah B. Tell me why. So Hannah B is, is a film made by the Japanese director Takeshi Kitano. And it won the Golden Lion in Venice. It's his fourth or fifth film. Um, the first film I saw of, saw of his was a film called Sonatine. Um, and that I was in high school at the time. And and that's another Japanese gangster film. With Hanabi, I think it's it's his finest film. And it's again in the world of cops and gangsters, the Yakuza after people and the cop is kind of a bad cop but also a good guy um but what i love so much about the film is that it does combine quite heavy violence but moments of just such beauty and tenderness um there's such a delicacy to the film he's he's a guy who who has a very bad tempo i think i think maybe bad tempo is an understatement but in the moments when he's tender and kind, uh, taking care of the people he, he loves. It's just so beautiful. The film's so beautiful. And um, I chose it because um, I saw the film, I think, at a, at a critical time of my life when I was kind of exploring new things and trying to find new things. And, and this film really stayed with me and had a, a lingering impact. Do you think it actually made you want to work in film or, or is that me overstating it? I think that's overstating it. I didn't. I didn't think it was possible to work in film, right? It, it it seemed inconceivable. But what it did was it it got me to want to watch more and more films from from everywhere, uh, Japan in particular, um, but films from everywhere. And it just got me very interested in Japanese culture and uh, everything from Japanese fashion to food to to just the the many beautiful things in in Japan that I'm still very attached to and attracted to. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that this was the film that that really made me believe I, I wanted to become a film festival director. I didn't know such a thing really existed. I, I didn't know how you could, you could do such a job. Um, but when I think back, I think it, it did certainly play a, a very large role 
in my curiosity. So film festivals are fabulous for the audience, but they must be wonderful for the filmmakers as well because it gives them an audience that they might otherwise not get. Particularly for filmmakers from, from around the world, like outside the Hollywood system. For a film like from Chile to be in Cannes, it's just a magnificent moment. And then they're announced to the world as this is a serious filmmaker to, um, to get them some attention because you know, I'm seeing 500 films a year, but there are, I don't know, tens of thousands of films made every year. Yeah. So it's really difficult for films to, to, be, to be discovered and, and uh, for there to be some attention. You know, films are really struggling for that, for, for attention, because even though there's so many film festivals around the world, most showing hundreds of films, there's still many, many films that, that don't emerge through that system. So there's a lot of competition, of course, and a festival selection can really be a very big deal for a film. Now, have you got any secret plans or not-so-secret plans to uh, write or direct yourself? No, oh, no. <laughs> Seriously? Go on, no. fess up. No, it's because it's much easier to watch films than to make them. That, that, I, that I know for certain. <laughs> so we're going to go from the 90s for your first choice uh, back in time to the 80s. You've chosen uh, Salman Rushdie's second novel, and that's, it's a book that has been voted on two separate occasions as the very, very best ever Booker Prize winner. So not just it won the Booker Prize. Yes. It's of all the Booker Prizes that have ever been awarded on two separate occasions, experts have said, yeah, but, but Midnight's Children is the one. So uh, tell us uh, why you have chosen that, Nishen. There's this wonderful thing that happens when... I'm, I'm going to digress briefly. There's this wonderful thing that happens when I, when I speak to like the young 20-year-old interns who, who come to the office and work with us. And they watch everything, and they read everything, and they're listening to every new album. Um, and I, I think, how do they do that? Where do they find the time to do that? But I was just like that when I was, you know, when I was around twenty, or even even earlier when, in high school. Um, I was trying to read everything and listen to everything and and watch everything. And and I think I, I read Midnight's Children in that in that period where where you're really just trying to absorb everything around you and, and try to know everything about everything. And for me, the, the novel's really important because it introduced me to this new language. I think the, the, the language in the book is so wildly inventive and funny. It's, it's so clever and knowing and brings in all these references. Uh, I, I thought that was fantastic. But also, I think growing up in, in South Africa... Um, the idea that individuals are formed very much by by politics and and their history, even if you even if you don't want to believe that or 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 not interest are not interested at all in, in politics or or your your history or your family's history, um, Midnight's Children really brought home to me at that point how how your identity, how your life is molded very much. By, by politics, by history, uh, by the government of the day or, or the government of several years, decades before. And, and explain the central premise of the book for somebody who hasn't uh, read it. It's about uh, the transition of India from, from Britain, Britain colonialism to independence and the partition of India, isn't it? Yeah, it's such a brilliant con concept. It's about, essentially, these children who are born on the stroke of midnight when India gains its independence. 
And all children born in that first hour have these superpowers. Uh, and, and these powers are very wide range of powers from telepathy to, to you know, really all sorts, of, every, every superpower you can imagine because there, there are loads of them. And uh, they're all over India. They're from all sorts of backgrounds, religious and caste and uh, regional backgrounds. And so it's a, it's a very, it, it's a great idea, but also in a way an obvious one of imposing the politics on individuals. And um, the book then takes us through essentially Indian history from, from that time, uh, from 1947 till I think around the 80s. So, so the main character was born in, in the hour uh, of independence, but, but Rushdie was born not in that hour, but in that year as That's well. That's right. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's absolutely right. So, so, so in terms of environments affecting you, you, and, and please correct me if I got this wrong, I mean, you were born and spent your early life in apartheid South Africa. That's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, wow. So how, how has that informed the man that you have become and the man that you are? A great deal. A great deal, uh, I would say. I mean, it's it's not something I, 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 I think about a lot now. But of course, it had um, a major influence on on who I am and how I think about things. So, I think I, I have, like most South Africans, I'm quite politically engaged. I'm very interested in what's happening politically, not just in South Africa, but in Australia and around the world. It's one of the first things when I. I guess there are two things I ask when I go to any new country. It's, okay, what's happening with the filmmakers? Who's new? Who's cool? What's, what's great? What have you seen? What are the best films this year? What, what should I check out? And what's happening politically? Right. Because I think that often informs what's happening culturally. And the more, the more you know about a place, uh, the more you know about a, the history of the place, I think that that gives you really the opportunity to have a better understanding of the contemporary cultural products, whether they're novels or, or films. Um, and so, of course, I can't be, though I wish I had the time, I can't be a, a student of every place I, I visit, at, you know, and know everything and, and, and study it for, for years on end. But um, I, I, try to, I try to have some background information and and usually I'll try to read a history of the place or try to find um, some contemporary novels that are interesting that are that are from that country um, and and even if it doesn't necessarily enhance watching some films it it's fascinating for me I feel I I get to know no more than I than I would have and uh, I always try to know more yeah so there's two quotes from that book that knock me on the floor. Uh, that <laughs> first was, children are the vessels into which adults pour their poison. And it's yeah. just talking about you know, how you can break the generational cycle of you know, hatred and injustice. But, but the, one, the, the second one is one I want to ask you about, which is the brilliant phrase which stays with me, which is, we all owe death a life. Mm-hmm. Isn't that an amazing, yeah. you know, we all owe death a life. And uh, I noticed that you studied English, but also philosophy. And I just wanted to quickly probe if you are a religious man or what, what's, your, what's your views on that stuff? I've been an atheist since I was about 12 or 13. Um, and 
I remain one today, uh, more secure in my my belief than ever. Right. Yeah. And and then and where do you get your motivation? Your your sort of your motivation from because you pack it in. You're you're not sort of sitting around doing nothing. You're watching eight hundred films a year and and a very busy man. Um, just feel you you just enjoy it, or are you driven by any particular? Well, going back to your earlier question about growing up in South Africa, I think that instilled in me some strong sense of hating injustice and hating hating prejudice. Uh, really being concerned about how people are are treated by their governments, by by other people. Um, so it's it's always been very much part of who I am. This this idea that we should fight injustice, we should we should uh, broaden people's understanding of the world, and kind of look to this idea that people aren't that different, even if they're from very different cultures or of a different race or of a different religious belief, that people aren't that different. And and cinema is one of one of the ways that. You can create a very quick empathy. If you sit in the State Theatre during the Sydney Film Festival or in any film festival um, in the world, in the space of a few days, you can go to India and Iran and Kosovo and Chechnya and Russia and, and a small town in, in America. And you see all these, all these stories. Um, and mostly you'll see, even in films that are very sad or, or films that portray people in very desperate or circumstances, you'll find that there are people just looking for dignity. Yes. There are people just, just looking for you know, a basic dignity, a basic respect. And that's what we want. We could be sitting in Sydney in very different circumstances, in very fortunate circumstances uh, for the most part. Um, but that's also what we want. Um, and it's not that just cinema that, that does this uh, certainly literature does and, and all, all sorts of culture does but um, cinema is the thing that I took to and I, I think showing the kinds of films that we, we show and, and the films that I love really can change people it changed my life by watching these various films or, or reading these, these books from different places um, and I, I, I'm still absolute in my belief that every time you show something it can really change Someone, I, I won't go so far as to say, well, you know, a particular film can completely change the world. It's more difficult than that. But I think every work of art can change someone, even a little bit, in an instant, and and that's that's enough to begin with. I, it's it's an amazing achievement to get the films that you get. This is from fifty five different countries. You, it, it does have the effect that you have just spoken about. It, is we will go to you know, six or seven films a year, and they would be films that we would never normally see. And, and it just, there was one recently, The Land of Mine, where you ended up feeling deep, deep, deep compassion for basically Nazi soldiers. But they weren't Nazi soldiers. They were 17-year-old boys. Children, who, yeah. Children. But yeah. you go, so it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that you do every year. I'm going to move you on from your second choice to your third choice. We're going to stay in the 80s and I love you because you have chosen a song from my favourite 
all-time favourite band who I've seen six times. Oh, uh, the, wow. the Smiths. So, <laughs> but you've chosen their bleakest ballad. Uh, uh, so you've yeah. chosen from their third studio album, The Queen Is Dead. You've chosen I've No, It's Over. Why? And I could have chosen any any song off that album, I think. And I love Cemetery Gates from that, and that, that would have been the the cheerier pick even though it's in the cemetery um but i know it's over i think for me is is it most challenged my idea of what pop music can be and i absolutely love the lyrics i think they're they're just tremendously great i think morrissey's it's one of morrissey's finest vocal performances um and the opening line I, yeah. Oh, mother, <laughs> yeah. I can feel the soil falling over my head. It is very bleak, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but but there's also the line, you know, it, um, it's easy to laugh, it's easy to hate, it takes guts to be gentle and kind. Those words have always stuck with me. And I, 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 thought, I thought about that then when I was just a kid in high school and, you know, people are kind of just automatically mean to each other. Not, not, in, the, not in the way that it is now. I think it was more good-natured when I was growing up. Um, but the idea that it took guts or took strength to be gentle and kind really stuck with me, and I've and I've always tried to be gentle and kind since then. And, I, and it's it's sometimes not easy, but then I I always remember those words and say, well, it's it's the more difficult thing to do, but it's it's the better thing to do. Kindness is not a weakness. It was one of the questions I was going to ask you because you know, I mean I've seen you do your thing on on stage in the festival, but is you meet you know hundreds thousands of people in your job and i imagine not all of them are completely reasonable uh and it's stressful and whatever else and everyone who i have spoken to about you mentions your calm polite gentle demeanor how do you pull that off surely is there no shoe throwing tantrum i mean how do you do it i'd I'd like to learn the skill well it's a smith's song right (laughs) now um it's also I i think it's Overall, it's far more effective. It's it's far more effective to be kind to people. It's uh, in my experience, it's it's far more effective to be polite and calm. Um, Sydney Film Festival is an incredibly well-run, massive organization. I've I've been in other circumstances, in other situations where things are are, are not going as smoothly, and. What I realized then was that if I was just walking around always smiling and looking calm and cool, then everyone thought everything was going just perfectly <laughs> well. Yeah. Right? It's, um, so you have things underneath really going to hell. Um, but if I was around and saying hi to everybody and, and, and being uh, smiley and, and, um, and looked like everything was going fine, then everyone thought, oh, this is, everything is, is great. This is a, a wonderful event. So I've maintained that I, I think if I'm I'm calm and kind, then people respond in a similar way. It's it's it, it kind of diffuses anger and things do go wrong, of course, and, and sometimes they go horribly wrong. I mean it's these are very important moments of the first ever screening of a film to to a public often. It's it's a world premiere, it's the first time. And sometimes things go wrong. There's a technical problem or or something goes wrong. And I think we always try to assure people that we're we're doing our best. If there's a problem, we're going to try to correct the problem as as quickly as possible, but also as calmly as possible. We we really try to to make it very clear that 
we're there to honor the, the film film and, and the filmmaker. That's our most important thing at, at that moment. And we'll do everything possible to, to do that. And I think if people are short of that, even if things go slightly wrong, they quickly recover from, from any any difficulties or any tantrums in some some cases. I, I, I love that insight because the, if you are amplifying and inflaming a situation, you're, you're not being the director of the film festival, you're making things worse. You should be the guy that someone comes to you with their hair on fire and you, and you lower the temperature. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, I love it. And, and I've, I've got so many things, I could talk to you about the Smiths for ages. <laughs> uh, one of the other, brilliant, the lyrics are so fantastic. If you're so very clever, then why are you on your own tonight? That's <laughs> yeah. just sensational. But yes. uh, um, sort of uh, congratulations are completely belated, but you are a recently married fellow. That's right. Uh, yep. can, can you talk to me a little bit? Um, uh, Belinda, have I got the name right? That's right, yes. You're, you're uh, quite a private person. On you'll, you'll be pleased to know your digital footprint is uh, very non-personal. I've been trying to, re- I've, I've been <laughs> well trying to do just that. So, <laughs> so give us I'm as much of, as you are comfortable giving me. I'm, I'm glad I succeeded. Um, yeah. Yes, we, we, we got married just under two years ago and, and we got married in, in South Africa. So... Right. Um, not not far away from my my hometown, and uh, it was uh, a wonderful wonderful event. I must say, I think it was very it was very difficult to to put together a wedding halfway across the world, um, and and we did all the arrangements uh, ourselves for the most part. And of course, weddings are, are fiendishly expensive, even in South Africa, as we we discovered. So there there is a thought at some point. Oh, we've you know, nothing's going right for the organization of this and, and none of the suppliers are, de- are delivering what they're meant to. They're asking such ridiculous questions and this is so expensive. It's it's blown out of, you know, the budget and all of that stuff. And then when you actually do it, um, you realize why they're done. I had, uh, as uh, as our, as the person who married us, I had uh, my my philosophy professor from, ah, from university right. who who's um, taken on uh, well he's gone through the necessary steps and the paperwork to to be able to officially marry people so that he's able to conduct completely secular completely non-religious marriages and he does something called a secular he calls a secular sermon when he talks about the history of marriage and, and you know why it's why it's done and what it talks about is that community aspect that that announcement to the people who are closest to you the people that you love that you announce to them your love and um and in our case it was just the most wonderful wonderful event and we had uh, we had many people from australia we had of course many people from south africa but uh, also people from around the world who 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 came people we know from our world in the world of film and uh yeah, it was just, it was remarkable. So talking of places, we're going to go from the north of England, where the Smiths um, started out, to the capital of Japan. So you've chosen Tokyo, and, and Japan has been a bit of a theme anyway. Um, tell us... Why you've chosen uh, Tokyo as your place on five of my life? And you know, it's it starts with Kitano in a way because Kitano, you know, seeing seeing those Kitano films and Hanabi in particular got me very interested in Japan. Um, and then I finally went to Japan and and just absolutely love 
Japan and, and Tokyo in particular, uh, some other places too, but, but Tokyo in particular. And I think it's, there's so many things I love about it, the food, uh, the fashion. I, one of the things in the Kitano films uh, and in, in Hanabi's, all those gangsters in those Yoji Yamamoto suits. And from the first time I saw the films, I thought, I really want a Yoji Yamamoto suit. So when I, when I got the, the job as the Sydney Film Festival director on my next trip to Japan, I bought myself a, a Yoji Yamamoto suit, which I, which is very, it's very baggy. It's really, it's really quite, <laughs> it's quite a, quite a, it's not what I usually wear, but when I wear it, I really, I really love it. I, I think for me, Japan is, is sort of an aesthetic refreshment. It kind of clears the slate of all things that are ugly and untoward and, and replaces them with beautifully presented, sophisticated, elegant everything right so so for me even if i'm eating in the cheapest cheapest noodle shop or a very fine sushi restaurant um there's a care to every element that happens there's um uh, an immense politeness when you are handed anything it's a crazy city tokyo because of course it's it's a huge city 20, 25 million people, but it operates in a, in a, in a different way from other, in New York or, or London or Bombay this or Cairo. This is fascinating. So, so, so you're, you found a culture that fits your personality type perfectly. So, I wonder, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's it. I've never thought about yeah, it that I mean, way. That's really interesting. Hearing you talk about politeness and kindness and, and things being done right. And I, I, When I go to Japan, the things that blow my mind, I just adore, is those stone gardens. You go, the care... Yeah that would have gone into that to make that garden. It's so beautiful, but it's, yeah. So there's, there's something deep within that way of being. That, Absolutely. As yeah. you say, is clarifying. Absolutely. You know, it's, you, you, you watched uh, like uh, the film Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And then there's the poor guy who had to, you know, he was on omelette duty for five years or something before they let, you know, he's not going to touch a fish for a good 20 years. You know, after yeah. he does the omelette for five years, he's going to, you know, have him wash the rice for another five years or something. I mean, and maybe it goes too far. Maybe it, it does go too far. And, and and sometimes I'm told, you know, I'm told things like, um, I, I love India as well. And I go to India all, uh, all the time. Uh, but my, my Japanese friends who are, who are sometimes or, or mostly utterly convinced of the superiority of everything Japanese. <laughs> For the most part, they're right. Uh, but then they, they'd say things like, oh, have you, but have you, oh, you like food in India, but have you had Japanese curry? It's right. even better. And I said, no, it's not. It's not better than Indian curry. And the Korean barbecue in Japan is not better than the Korean barbecue <laughs> in Korea. <laughs> so there's, there's some things where I think it's, it's maybe overstated and goes too far. Um, but for the most part, no, I think it's it's really a place of of great culture and, and great taste and, and refinement that I, I very much connect to. Moving on to your fifth and final choice. Uh, you have chosen a gold bracelet. Have you brought it with you, I think, maybe? A gold bracelet uh, given... Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm holding it now. Oh, beautiful. That was, if I am correct, given to your mother by her mother and then given to you please tell me about it well you know when when you asked to choose a possession i i really it was the one i struggled with most actually because everything else i i i had an idea of what i would say but with the possession i thought well 
and I can't say that I'm this, you know, I have this completely um, stark aesthetic or stark life. I buy lots of stuff. I, I, I shop all the time, and, <laughs> far more than my wife does. And, it's, and in, in, in Japan, my friends call me shopping boy as if some sort of superpower because I quickly go and buy, buy some stuff. But when I thought of what is the possession, I, there's some things very much connected to the other choices. There, there are books that I, I love. I have a, um, a signed copy of uh, Disgrace by J.M. Kutsir, who's wow. one of my favorite novelists. And, and I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing to have because uh, I'm not sure he's, he's that keen on signing things so much. Um, there are records I have. Uh, there are CDs I have that are very special to me. There's some artworks that I, that I have that I really really love and and have collected over some some years but then i thought this is the this is the thing that i have i wear all the time probably since it was given to me like maybe i was 15 or something so it's with me all the time i only ever take it off at airports and and now for the show (laughs) (laughs) rattle around and make a noise um and i'm not i'm not especially sentimental about Things and, and my family is not the sort of family that does heirlooms and, and it's it's none of that stuff. I think it's a beautiful object. Firstly, yeah, it's and gorgeous. Yeah. I think it's important to me because my mother gave it to me and she didn't have to, and her mother gave it to her, of course. So there's there's something something there, something going on there. But in in yeah. your in your childhood, growing up, I know it's it's, it's difficult to. <sighs> pick a parent you can't but but was your mum the most influential relationship in your childhood or, or equal with your dad or, or no she was very much more influential i think um my mum loved the cinema uh she really loved the cinema my dad hated the cinema hate is probably too strong a word but he he wouldn't watch he wouldn't watch films ever i don't think i went to a single film with him um he liked playing sport he liked watching sport um, so he'd much rather watch football or cricket than than watch a film. A film for him was kind of a no. It's it's more important to watch, uh, uh, you know, the English football of, of right. that that weekend. So, uh, but she she loved movies. Um, she she really did, and she would take me to films. Uh, you know, as as soon as I could go to films, and I I I watched westerns because she loved westerns and. We'd watch often double bills where cinemas would would play something new like Ghostbusters, right. uh, and but then because it had to be a double bill, they'd just throw on whatever print they had around. Like they they weren't they weren't making it a, a double bill of equal <laughs> attractiveness, if you know what I mean. It was whatever they had lying around that was free or or whatever. So I watched. Uh, lots of kung fu films as well, which right. which also really had a, a big impact. I, I I was a big Bruce Lee fan when I was a I was a kid, um, so I watched quite quite interesting things because of this the system, um, and that uh, that of course had a very big influence on me. Um, and my mother's also very kind. She's a very kind person. She's a very gentle. Person, and I think I I I learned that from her. Do, do you ever get to, her over for the festival? No, she's never come for the festival. She's she's visited here once um, and liked it, uh, but I don't think she'll I don't think she'll travel internationally again. I think it's she she traveled. Both my parents traveled quite a lot when when I was young, and they were much uh, younger. And 
it's not as glamorous now as it used to be. And I think all the security stuff, I mean, even I find it irritating that I have to take my, my bangle off for sure. all this stuff. But for, for, for people of her generation, I think it's just incredibly frustrating and, and onerous. And, uh, so yeah. in your tenure of the Sydney Film Festival, and I don't want to embarrass you, but it, it's, it's well known. It's been an incredible success. You've grown it dramatically in terms of the number of films shown, people that see it, the countries that are represented. It's, it's a fantastic success. So rather than ask you about that, which would be obvious, I just the penultimate question for you is, have you got a uh, humorous or otherwise uh, regret mistake early on that you wish you hadn't made? You can speaking now from your your uh, position of success. If only mm. I hadn't hired that film or cinema. Oh, it happens all the time. It's not you don't have to go to an early mistake. Uh, you can <laughs> <laughs> yesterday, and and they're not so much mistakes. I I think they're misreadings of the situation. And at the end, I'm still convinced I'm right. <laughs> And that the two thousand people are wrong, right? Like that's how I can maintain, uh, you know, I, I can stay in the job by being absolutely confident. They just didn't get it, but yeah, they just didn't get it. But I remember, I think it was in my first year, and it was it was a film I I love the film uh, actually, um, and I played it at the State Theatre, so it's it's a lot of people, and it's about this couple, and they're they're trekking. I don't want to identify the film too too closely, but they 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 trekking and there's this uh, they're in a romantic relationship and there's some some tension and a particular incident that that causes it. But there's a lot of trekking, there's a lot of walking along these beautiful mountains, and it's interspersed with very dramatic moments. But it's a lot of walking, and the audience just turned against this film, and I was there, and each time they went on one of these walks the audience would just start moaning in the loudest audible way, but in unison. And when close to 2,000 people turn against the film, it's a very, very horrible, horrible thing. So perhaps I should have played that in a slightly smaller cinema well, listen, <laughs> and not been there. I've got a bone to pick with you because I sat through, I think it was the most boring two hours of my life. I took three of my children and I can't work out whether it's a work of utter genius or the worst thing I've ever seen. So I'd appreciate your uh, point of view. Monrovia. Oh, the Frederick Wiseman film. Unbelievable. No, that's, that's a work of genius. Uh, I, I, it, <laughs> it's just... But it's, uh, what know, is it's, going on? But it's probably not a film you should take children to <laughs> or or someone not, not attuned to that sort of type of observational documentary where not a lot is going to go on. It's just normal life. It's just it, what, it stayed just with what me happens. for two years. It's just what happens there every day. And it's... Uh, That's um, good. Work of genius, right? I'm, if, if anyone ever asks me about that, I, I work would, of genius. I would say it's it's part of a body of work of genius <laughs> because he's made these observational films about all sorts of, all sorts of things. Uh, strangely, he made a, a film about the New York City Public Library a few years ago. That was one of the first films for us that sold out. It was in, it was three or four hours long. It's just about the workings of the library, and before you know, it it was the first thing to sell out for the festival, which is incredible, amazing. Yeah. To my last traditional question, the the, the trick six question, Neshen, which is, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? Hmm. Hilary Mantel. 
Hilary Mentor, what a great... Is she going to get the booker, do you think, for the third one? Look, I, I read uh, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies back to back, so it's been a long eight-year week. And I think, she, I think she must be... I don't know very much about her, but I think she must be utterly fascinating. Um, and what would she choose? Well, we're, we're, we're going to find out because we're going to get yeah. in touch. Nashemili, thank you so much for sharing your choices on Five My Life. Thank you. It's been wonderful to speak to you. Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 